pray you'd give us ears to hear now as we come to the study of your word that we would see from your word what should be seen and that we'll respond in ways that would honor you, that would reflect your influence in our life. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Rooted and built up in him. Established in the faith as you were taught. Abounding in thanksgiving. Now, those of you that have been attending through the month of January, these words, I trust, are now familiar to you. Paul makes this appeal to a group of believers in the city of Colossae. As they've come to re respond to Jesus in faith, Paul urges them to allow their faith to influence how they live their lives. They're supposed to walk in Jesus. That's what he directs them to do. Well, through the course of this month, we've been considering what that means. Uh, I've entitled the series, The Walk, and what we're wanting to understand as believers, if you are one who's trusted in Jesus, what is it that we do so that we can actively walk in Jesus Christ? Through the course of the month and into the next couple of months, we're going to continue to look at that. And a part of this journey has been, we've been reflecting upon Paul's letter to this church. It's called the book of Colossians, sometimes referred to as an epistle or a letter. It's Paul trying to encourage believers like us to live out our faith. Now, since the very start of the series, I've been urging you to do something with what we've been discussing and the writer James says that we're not simply to be hearers of the word, but we're supposed to be doers of the word, which his point is when we come to understand what God asks us to do, we try as honestly as we know how to do that. We act upon that. And uh, from the very start, January 5th, I've begin, begun to suggest kind of a plan that we might try to employ into the week uh, that we enter. And again, this morning, I want to promote, we, we have a plan for the week ahead. If you picked up one of our connections, you'll see it's described there. And if you've yet to pick one up, I hope on your way out, you'll take one with you because I want us to do something tomorrow, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, with what we're discovering to be true in our life of faith. Now, if you already happen to look at this week's plan, you'll probably say it sounds a whole lot like last week's plan. And that's true. It is. It's identical to last week. And just to encourage us, particularly for those of you that are with us for the first time, I want to remind you of where we're going into the week ahead as we seek to live out a life of faith. Now, the first thing that I'm suggesting is that tomorrow morning, uh, we read a chapter out of the book of Colossians. Now, we've been doing that now. This is our fourth week. We've been doing it repeatedly. We've been reading the same letter, all four chapters, over and over and over again. If you have stayed up with us today, we've started our sixth reading. 
And by the end of the week, we will be into our seventh reading. And what I'm wanting us to do by reading the letter repeatedly is to kind of live with the letter so that the letter begins to live with us, so that we have a perspective that's influenced by what we're reading and guides us in what we're doing. If you're with us for the first time, here's my invitation to you. Tomorrow, read chapter one. If you've been with us throughout, but you've not been as consistent as you intended to be, pick up where you left off and just read a chapter out of Colossians. Now, read it prayerfully. We're not trying to check a religious box. Read it as one seeking to understand God's heart. So ask him as you read to highlight a lesson that would help you understand what he desires you to do or to understand. Just ask him. And once you have a sense of something he's pointing you to, Ask him also to help you live it out. Don't simply see a step to take. Ask him to enable you to take the step. Now, the second thing that we emphasize for this week, as we did last week, and I would just read it for you as it's worded in the, in the connections. As we're focusing on the Lord out of the readings, ask God also to fill you with his wisdom and understanding concerning the people and situations you face into the day ahead. Now, if you were not with us last week, in the early part of Paul's letter, he prays for these believers. And remarkably, you know what he asked for? He asked God to fill them, to literally fill them with the knowledge of his will, so that in their heart, through his influence, they would know what they should do. And that's what I've been asking us to begin doing for ourselves, but also for others. We're praying that God will fill us with the spiritual wisdom and understanding to know how we should respond to what we're about to encounter. A practical way to approach this, as I suggested last week, is as you're asking for God's wisdom, if you would, try to visualize who you will see in the morning. I mean, who is it that you anticipate seeing? What are your responsibilities that you're about to undertake? And then ask him for wisdom to know what to do. Then shift your attention to the afternoon, same approach. God, who am I going to see as much as I can anticipate? What are my responsibilities? What are the challenges before me? God, I need a wisdom here. I need an understanding that comes from you. And then you do the same for the evening because obviously it's in the evening that more than likely we spend time with those individuals that we really value and love in a greater way. And so we certainly want God's influence there too. The point being, we're asking for wisdom from God. Now, as we're seeking that wisdom, let me stress, we do so with our Bibles open. We're not just asking God to influence our heart without considering what he's already said within his word. We Recognize he's revealed a great deal in his word. We're asking for him to give us a, a spiritual understanding and wisdom to know how to live that out. And when something is happening in our lives that isn't specifically addressed in his word, we ask for him to fill us with the knowledge of his will that we'll know how to respond. And so we're asking for that. Uh, going back to the second uh, action, I would say once you begin to do that, prayerfully identify the path the Lord would have you to take and then ask his help to walk it. I can't say that strongly enough. We're not asking God to simply point the way. We're asking him to enable us to go there, to walk in that way. 
to live it out. The final application we've been emphasizing really for the last couple of weeks, conclude your prayer by marveling over God's work of salvation. We need to live thankful. And then as you express thanks for his work, go ahead and identify two other areas that you're thankful for and give thanks to God. Now, I'm offering this as a plan of action so that potentially by doing these kinds of things, we approach God, we draw near to God, we experience faith in a personal way, we learn how to walk in Jesus. I hope you'll join us this week as we pursue that. Now this morning though, we're gonna go back to Paul's letter and this morning, I just want us, as Paul helps us to do, I just want us to focus on Jesus Christ. Now, in a typical service, there's a lot of things that distract us. There's a lot of things that maybe are on our minds, and maybe we'll allow those to influence even our thoughts in the course of a worship service. Well, for the remaining time that I speak, would you try to just focus on who Jesus is? and consider how that testimony may affect your life for the better. Now, Paul provides for us a description of Jesus that is profound. Uh, some refer to it as a hymn or poem that gives you an insight to who Jesus is. It is truly an extraordinary testimony. So let me read the testimony surrounding Jesus, and then I want us to step back from it as we focus on him and to consider what that means with regard to our lives. I'm going to start the reading at verse 15 of Colossians chapter 1. Listen to what Paul writes. He, referring to Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created. In heaven, on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he, Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he, Jesus, is the head of the body, the, the church, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth are in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. As I suggest to you, Paul has provided us an eloquent hymn of, of Christ. It's, he's describing for us who Jesus is. And the significance of this goes back to what we've been discussing for, for three weeks, four weeks. I mean, when we talk about walking in Jesus, Need I say, this is the Jesus we're walking in. 
And if we understand who he is, it then reassures us as we move forward in faith. We need to focus on him. Now, for a few moments, let me highlight some of what Paul's trying to help us to understand about who Jesus is. Beginning with this, he wants you to know that Jesus is the image of God. That's where he starts. In his own words, verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. The word that is translated in our English Bible's image is a Greek word that is icon. It's a term that has even kind of found its way into the English language. But the term icon in Paul's day really emphasizes two things that will be helpful to us. First, it does emphasize this whole idea of representation or revelation. That when he speaks of Jesus, he says that Jesus is Literally, the representation of God. Now, the last couple of weeks, I've encouraged us to approach our Bible readings like a mirror, where we would look at the Bible and allow God to help us to see ourselves as we need to see, because we know that's how mirror works. When you look in a mirror, you see a reflection of what is, right? It's, in a way, kind of an icon. It's an image. Well, we need to realize when we talk about Jesus, when we speak about Jesus, he is completely the image of God. If you've ever had any question about what God is like, just look to Jesus Christ. He is the image of God. Now that term icon also emphasizes another thing that must not be missed. The term also emphasizes not just representation, but also manifestation. That he's not saying of Jesus here, he's kind of a, a, an impression of what God is like. No, he's actually saying he is God. He is the image of God. He is the truth of who God actually is. If you read through the New Testament, you'll realize that testimony surrounding Jesus is consistently made. That over and over again, those that came to know Jesus would point to him and say, he's not just an ordinary man. He's not just a, an impressive individual. He's God. Consider John in his gospel, chapter 1, he speaks of this in a way that might help us. Now, in John 1, verse 14, he refers to Jesus as the logos or the word. Listen to the testimony. And the word became flesh, referring to Jesus, and dwelt among us. In other words, I'm an eyewitness. And we have seen his glory. And then he qualifies it. The glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Now, can I paraphrase John there? We saw God in front of us. The fullness of him. The fullness of his grace. The fullness of his truth. We saw him. We experienced him. The writer of Hebrews speaks to the uniqueness of Jesus when he says in Hebrews 1 and verse 3, He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Now, the reason I'm emphasizing this as I have with you is because we live in a culture that 
wants to bring Jesus down in our perspective. They want us to consider Jesus as something other than the revelation of God. I mean, there was a Netflix series that was actually mocking the identity of Jesus and and portraying him in, in a homosexual lifestyle. See, we live in a culture that wants to present to us something other than what the Bible presents when it comes to Jesus Christ. Paul, as he would write to a church, as he would speak to us, would say, you need to know who he is. He is the image of the invisible God. He is God. Now take heart, read the Gospels. When I see Jesus, as he interacts with a broken and dysfunctional world, I'm reassured. He seeks to reach into the brokenness to help us find in him what we need to move forward. That is the heart of God. That's who Jesus is. Now, the writer of Hebrews carries the thought further after he points to Jesus as the exact imprint of God's nature. He then says of Jesus, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. How about that for a statement? By the way... Paul said the same thing, didn't he? He said Jesus is not only the image of God, Jesus is sovereign over creation itself. He says it in a variety of ways. Let me take you back to Paul's testimony, back to Colossians 1 verse 6, verse 15. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. Then he says he is the firstborn of all creation. Now let me help us here. Uh, When we see the term firstborn, we primarily think in terms of time, chronology. This was the first child born, right? That's how we understand the term. You should appreciate when Paul writes and in the world in which Paul lived, the reference to firstborn, certainly when you find it in scripture, isn't speaking of chronology of time. It's emphasizing priority or position. See, in Paul's day, the firstborn was given greater right, right? It was conferred greater rank or position. It's attached to the title. You're the firstborn. And as Paul begins to speak of Jesus, he wants us to know in relationship to creation, he is preeminent over it. He has authority over it. Now, what would give Jesus that Preeminence, well, he explains, verse 16, for by him, Jesus, all things were created in heaven, on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created, notice, through him and for him. Now, what Paul's trying to do is to help us understand who Jesus is. He's God incarnate. He's the image of God. He is the instrumentality of creation itself. And the reason that should be reassuring, if we're walking with Jesus, who is the power of creation, shouldn't we have confidence as we deal with what we're dealing with? He's created everything. It's through him and for him, that's who Jesus is. 
Once more, I, I want you to realize that is the consistent testimony of Scripture. I referenced John in his gospel a moment ago. Let me take you back to John. John begins his gospel by referring to Jesus as the word or the logos. He says, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And then in verse 3, listen to what John says. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. I'm not ignoring that in 2020, there are a lot of people outside the church that would kind of laugh and scoff at the notion that there's a creator. They've been led to believe that what we see around us is the consequence of a, a series of random events, kind of just events that just happened, that brought about all of this extraordinary complexity, diversity. I mean, we see it and it's just the most astounding series of accidents, right? That would be what some would suggest. Scripture teaches that, no, what we see around us is the result of a creator, that there is a force at work greater than us that brought into being what we see, what we experience. That explains the complexity of what is found. I mean, let me take this a little further. I mean, most of us carry around what we call smartphones. Now, think with me for a moment. Did that smartphone just accidentally happen? We consider it smart, but I mean, was it like just one day, randomly, all of these various parts just magically kind of came together to produce something that is incredibly complex? We all understand, no, there was a designer, there was intelligence behind what we have, and we refer to it as a smartphone. Well, I want you to realize, when you look at particularly the complexity of human life and what we see among humanity, in spite of our failings and our weaknesses, there's something remarkable that's there with us. How do we explain, explain human consciousness? It's more than biochemical reactions in the brain. Something's going on there. How do we explain the sense of morality or the appreciation of this being beautiful or ugly or whatever characterization we might use? We seem to emphasize that there's something in us that values these things. Now, where does that come from? Well, the Bible would say, well, a creator. And more specifically, Jesus. He brought into being the complexity, the wonder, the glory of life, Jesus. Now, still in John's account, he goes on to say in verse 4, in him Jesus is life, and that life is the light of men. See, Paul wants us to realize we're believing in, trusting in, walking in the one who is sovereign over. Again, look at his language, verse 16. All things, Paul writes, were created through him and for him. He, Jesus, is before all things. And in him, oh, I like this. All things hold together. I look around, I know there are a lot of people that think that our world is kind of spinning chaotically out of control, and if we're not careful, it's going to blow up. 
Now, I'm not diminishing human responsibility, good stewardship of what we do and how we live. I want you to know something from Scripture, though, is this world is ultimately maintained because Jesus sustains it. He, according to Paul, holds it all together. He does. Now, you really want to be encouraged. As chaotic as your life is, take heart. Jesus can hold your life together. He can hold you together. And if you're like me, there are days where I don't think I can hold myself together, but bless the Lord, Jesus can. Right? He is the one who holds all things together. He's sovereign, you see, over creation. We could stop there, but Paul doesn't. He says he's not only sovereign over creation, he's sovereign over the church. Did you notice that? He moved from talking about creation in general to describing the church in specific. You may not realize that there are times in the New Testament that those who are parts, members of the church, those who've trusted in Jesus, they're actually referred to as the new creation. So he's brought all things into being, sin, tragically, has disrupted and affected and resulted in brokenness that we all know firsthand. I don't blame God for the brokenness of the world. Mankind has brought so much of what we see around us. But take heart, God, seeing the brokenness, wanted to bring about a new creation, and Jesus came to do that. He's sovereign over that. Listen to how Paul describes that, verse 18. And he is the head, referring to Jesus, the head of the body, the church. Now, we can understand this language. The head directs the body, right? When the head no longer directs the body, we've got a problem. Wouldn't you agree with that? You need to see a doctor. Something's not as it should be. Well, Jesus, Paul says, is now in that position. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the head of us. Some are confused maybe in thinking that pastors are the head of the church. God forbid. No, Christ is the head of the church. There's not a select group of people that are the head of the church. No, Christ is the head of the church. What we seek is from him a wisdom that would guide us to know how do we respond to life. But Christ is the head, you see. He's the one we seek to recognize. Not only that, he is the beginning, underscoring that the church has found its origin from him. He started the church, and that's what the Bible explains. So we appreciate what it started with him. And Paul adds he's the firstborn from the dead. Now there's that term again, firstborn. We typically think first in order, right? The Gospels tell us that Jesus raised three people from the dead, so from the Gospels' point of view, he was the fourth that was resurrected. So why does he call him the firstborn? Because the term emphasizes rank, authority, prominence. See, because Jesus conquered death, he can then supply what only he can supply. He can offer to us life. 
On Friday, one of our members passed away. He physically died, but he has not ceased to be. The Bible says Jesus, the firstborn from the dead, has provided life even in death. In Jesus' own words, he cries, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. There you go. Paul says, see, that's who he is. He's the firstborn from the dead, that in everything Jesus might be preeminent. Now, what's his point? Jesus should be sovereign over the church. Now, I use the word should. Can we agree at times we resist that? See, remember, as we talked last week where we're seeking the wisdom of God, we come to his word first. We seek to understand, well, what do you want us to do? How would you have us to act? And as we're looking at his word, then we're looking at the circumstances of life where we then pray, now, God, how do we do this? What do you want us to do? How do we respond Now, let's not pretend that as Christ followers, we're perfect and always discerning that or even carrying that forward. But the point is, what should be the disposition of our heart is we're asking God, Christ, the head, to lead us, right? That's what we want. And when we're faced with those kinds of questions, that's what we seek. And when we discern his leading, then we ask for his help, right? Enable me to do what isn't natural for me to do, but you're sovereign. You're sovereign. I trust you. Paul comes around full circle. He then adds, he's not only sovereign over the church, he's the fullness of God. Again, it's full circle. Where did he start? He's the image of God. But now he declares he's the fullness of God. Listen to his wording. Verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He is God. That's why he's sovereign. But as the fullness of God, realize we can then detect the heart of God. And his heart is always to to try to reconcile and restore, to bring forward what is broken. And in this case, listen to how that's worded. Verse 20, Jesus, or Jesus is the reconciler of all things. That's the larger point, but listen to the verse. Through him, Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now, I alluded to it a moment ago. I need to come back to it. When we see the brokenness in our world, it's a reflection of mankind's having turned away from properly relating to the one who created them. We refuse to trust him and relate to him as God. But as God witnessed the brokenness that followed, he acted in a way to try to address that. And so God himself came through the incarnation, Jesus, to reconcile that, to provide what would be necessary. And it was costly. Some point to the example of the cross as simply kind of a a symbol of great love. It's more than that. 
It's at the cross of Jesus Christ that he did what was necessary so he could reconcile a sinful, broken world and bring it back to a place where the world could experience a loving God. That's why he died. Jesus died to reconcile so that in our lives, as we walk in him, we can experience what God desires to bring forward in good ways, beautiful ways. And so as Paul points us to Jesus, he wants us to live with that vision of Jesus before us. Not some lesser reality of who he is, no. He should be elevated in our minds, in our hearts, as we move into a day and we're talking to God in the midst of our struggles and we're turning to Jesus to walk in him. This is the Jesus we're walking in. Should we be fearful? He wants to bring us forward. He wants us to live in this. Final thought, as Paul finishes this part of his letter, he goes on to add, and you, speaking to believers, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he, Jesus, has now reconciled in his body, notice the sacrifice, in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. He wants to bring you forward. As you walk in him, he wants to present you as he alone can enable you to be. Now, it does involve, I think, some response on our part. We've talked about receiving him. Paul would say, as you've received him, you need to walk in him. In other words, faith needs to be continuing in its influence. Listen to what he says in verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now some look at verse 23 in reference to us continuing in the faith, fearing now, is he insinuating that if I don't continue in the faith, that then what Jesus is seeking to do won't be fully realized. Can I lose my salvation? Can I undo what he's done? We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Paul is very clear that the salvation we seek is God's work. It's Jesus who saves. But in verse 23, he is suggesting that we need to continue in this so that what he is doing is not disrupted. We cooperate with his work, don't we? And when I don't walk day by day in faith, just know you're disrupting to the extent that he wants to affect your life for the better. I remind you of Jesus' words in John 15 that kind of states it the same way. He says, abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless, notice the condition, unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is, she it is, 
who bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And so if I want to fully experience everything that Jesus has come to reconcile, then what do I need to do? I need to be steadfast in my faith, right? I need to walk in him, relate to him, trust in him, live life by faith in him. So as I would point you to read Colossians, your focus isn't on Colossians. Where's your focus? It should be on Jesus. As I would encourage you to seek the wisdom of God concerning your life, your focus isn't on finding a comfortable path forward. Your focus should be where? On Jesus. Lord, what do you want? How would you ask me to step forward? What do you want me to do? See, our focus is on him. It'll, it should be. So this morning, I don't know where your focus was as you came into the service. My hope is, given this testimony, for the few minutes remaining, we will focus our hearts where it should be focused, on Jesus, who is the image of God, sovereign over creation, sovereign over the church, the fullness of God. We're focusing on the one who reconciles us. Let me lead us in prayer. Dear God, I'm asking through your Holy Spirit that the testimony of your word would now stir our hearts to respond in faith. I'm not wanting someone to react to something I've said. I'm wanting us to respond to the truth of who Jesus is. God, forgive us when we focus on so many other things, even worse, forgive us when our Christian life seems to primarily focus on us. Help us to live a life of faith that moves us forward thoughtfully, appropriately. Help us. Forgive us where we have faltered. Pick us up where we are stumbling. Enable us to live as we should. Father, for a person here today that's yet to trust in Jesus as their Savior, may they realize the wonder of who he is and even today choose to believe. May we see the miracle of that. Father, I'm asking, speak. Draw us into yourself through your blessed Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.